finishing this first series of lectures on the communist revolution, which you all seem very young to me, and uh, you're going to need to remember this because in future generations, nobody will remember the communist revolution or what it did and how evil it was. <clears throat> Carl Gustav Mannerheim was born in Finland of Swedish ancestry, like many Finns. He was born just after the middle of the 19th century and lived to be 83. He loved his country and its brave people, and they loved him. He is their national hero. He has been called the Arctic Eagle, and the Second World War produced no better general. Not MacArthur, not Patton or Eisenhower, not Montgomery, nor Zukov. He was as great as the supreme general America ever produced, Robert E. Lee. Twice, Mannerheim saved his country and his people from the most terrible fate of a terrible century, conquest and subjection by communism. The odds against him were 40 to 1. As a young man, he became an officer in the Tsar's Russian army because Finland was then part of Russia. As such, he was thrown into the whirlpool of the Communist Revolution, which I described to you in February, and of the Russian Civil War, which I talked about last month. But Mannerheim did not end up shot by the Communists like the Tsar and his family. He met the evil face to face and took its measure in an intensely dramatic scene at the Russian Army headquarters at Mogilev. Last month we saw how the last of the Tsar's general, generals gathered there to fight the communists who had seized their homeland. They were all executed or fled, or later were hunted down and murdered in the West. Mannerheim alone could have won that war, so vitally important to the whole world. He did not flee and he was not killed, and in the end he secured the independence of his country which remained an island of freedom on the border of the communist domain. At the beginning of World War II, he saved his country again from the communists, now led by Stalin, in the Winter War of 1939-40. Despite being outnumbered massively, and though past his 70th birthday, he gave Stalin the worst beating he ever received from anyone. The other white generals in the Russian Civil War could have put themselves under Mannheim's command. If they'd done that, he would have won the Russian Civil War for them. But they would not do it, because his condition for accepting such a command was recognition of the independence of his native land, which in blind stupidity they would not grant. I traveled to Finland just at the time communism was falling and found it exhilarating. Its people were the soundest and healthiest I have ever seen, except for the people of Catholic Malta, though there are only five Catholic churches in the whole country of Finland. Nobody in Finland will ever forget Carl Gustav Mannerheim. They still put flowers on his grave and the graves of his soldiers. When Ensign Krylenko, the student rebel whom Lenin had made commander of his army, arrived at the railroad station in Mogilev in the year of the Communist Revolution, 1917, the last commander of the Imperial Russian Army, General Dukonin, had already been arrested by the local soldier Soviet. Dukonin was brought to the station to meet Krylenko. Mutinous soldiers assembled on the station platform. They drummed on the side of, his, of Dukonin's carriage with their rifle butts. 
De Conan came out on the step and took a rifle bullet in the heart. A silver wave of bayonets overran him and pitchforked his bleeding body across the platform. The last commander-in-chief of the Russian army lay a huddled, mangled corpse upon the rails. Cheering and growling, the homicidal mob went away to look for more victims. Hardly were they gone when a mournful whistle sounded from the opposite direction from Krylenko's train. Remember how I told you last time, trains are the key to the history of the Russian Civil War? Another battered locomotive nosed into Mogilev Station heading north. Out of a passenger carriage behind it stepped a tall, mustached man in fur hat and fur-collared overcoat with a firm military bearing, cool, steady eyes, a rounded chin, and a pipe in his mouth, in the full uniform with epaulettes and insignia of a lieutenant general, Carl Gustav Mannheim, on his way back to his native Finland. He saw the pool of blood on the platform and asked his cause. He was told. His face set, imperturbable, he boarded his carriage again. I do not think Mannerheim ever forgot that stark and horrible scene on the railway tracks at Mogilev. Marshal Mannerheim, who was to be called the Arctic Eagle, had met the enemy. He was personally to save his country of Finland twice from conquest by communism, humbling proud Stalin at the height of his power. No man knew better than Mannerheim what communist conquest and victory meant. This forgotten hero might also have saved Russia and the world from communism if he had been given a free hand in the Russian Civil War. Only he was able to defeat communist armies during that war. But instead, the white armies in Siberia were put under the command of Admiral Kolchak, who in the midst of the wastes of Siberia was about as far from the sea as a man can go anywhere on the face of the earth. He knew, Kolchak knew very little about land warfare, and as we saw last month, met a dark fate. Only Mannerheim knew how to win. He was a native-born Finn, and Kolchak and the other white commanders refused to even consider independence for his home country. And so they threw away the services of the best general they had. On January 16, 1918, the president of Finland, who had declared its independence of Russia just after the Communist Revolution, appointed Mannerheim commander-in-chief of the armies of the new republic. True to Napoleon's maxim of generals, he lost not an hour. Finland had a large communist party, which wished to bring it under the rule of Lenin's Russia. The very next day, Mannerheim contacted a banker, an old friend named Axel Ehrenruth. He told Ehrenruth exactly what communist rule meant. Surely in telling him, he mentioned the ravaged body of General de Conan on the railway platform at Mogilev. Ehrenruth and a committee of fellow bankers produced on the spot a loan of 15 million marks, marks of the Finnish money, to create an army for Mannerheim. These capitalists, at least, were not, as Lenin cynically said of all capitalists, going to sell the communists the rope to hang them. But Helsinki, the Finnish capital, was full of armed communists and their sympathizers and supporters. At any moment, Mannerheim and the whole Finnish government might be arrested. On January 18th, Mannerheim and four companions set out by train from Vasa, 200 miles to the north. The communists controlled the reins, but there was no other way to go. 
Mannerheim carrying a false passport was almost detected. Through the mysterious intervention of, quote, a young man in a uniform cap, end quote, he was let go and completed his journey. This young man who changed the course of history on that train from Helsinki to Vasa remains unidentified and his motives unknown. Mannerheim trained his officers himself. No one served as an officer under Mannerheim who had not completed his training school at Vasa. So he had picked men for his officers. He would need them. It was none too soon. On January 28th, there was a communist coup in Helsinki. Mannerheim secured Vasa, and the war was on. Mannerheim was an aristocrat, a baron, but he knew how to make simple men love and follow him. He and they knew exactly what they were fighting for. The farmers of Vasa rallied to him. In his own person, he bridged the class differences Lenin had made his, his life's work to exploit. Within the next few days, all of northwestern Finland was secure in the name of uh, the new independent government of Finland, and by the end of February 1918, the whole northern half of the country. Volunteers poured in, including refugees from the Red Terror in the south of the country, until Mannerheim and his army became a shield of freedom against rampaging evil, 40,000 Finns against 90,000 Russians. The Finns were superb soldiers, proudly self-reliant, in excellent physical condition, born and bred in one of the coldest climates on earth, Outside of Siberia, they were tough as nails and dangerous as tigers. Not for Finland, the suicide and surrender, which marked the whites in the Russian Civil War. Instead, they fought to the end. That has turned out to be the only way communism is ever defeated. And it was Karl Gustav Mannerheim who led these brave men to victory. The Treaty of brest litovsk of March 3, 1918, had freed the Germans to intervene in Finland. But Mannerheim and his men had not the slightest desire to be rescued by them. On March 5th, Mannerheim prepared plans for an attack on Tampere, a large Finnish city and a communist stronghold. Like our Admiral Hall's hit Guadalcanal in the Pacific War, his answer to the disaster was counterattack. Like Robert E. Lee at Chancellorsville in the American Civil War, he attacked an army twice his size and won. Do you see now why I call him the greatest general of his age? A brilliant campaign of maneuver in the middle of March 1918 was followed by a magnificent assault on Tampere, in which soldiers with only three weeks' combat experience acquitted themselves like veterans under Mannerheim's eye. He and they were contending against the greatest evil of the accursed 20th century. I believe their general, as he fought, had the image of General de Conan's mangled body lying in a pool of his blood always before his eyes. On April 3rd, Tampere fell to Mannheim, who took 11,000 prisoners and inflicted 4,000 casualties at the cost of less than half that number of Finns. Mannheim moved to Vipuri, the Finnish city close to St. Petersburg, where Lenin had once taken refuge. Its communist commanders asked Mannerheim for an armistice. He demanded unconditional surrender. They fled to St. Petersburg by sea. On May 1st, May Day, the communist holiday, surely it was no coincidence that Mannerheim chose this day for his triumphal entry into Vipuri. 
He cleaned this medieval church of Michael Agricola, which the communists had used to store grain and held a service of thanksgiving. In an order of the day, he hailed the liberation of Vipuri. Quote, On arriving at Vipuri, the ancient capital of Karelia, on seeing the proud castle of Torkel for hundreds of years, the sure shield of Finland against the attacks <coughs> of foreigners, until 200 years ago it was captured by the Russians, I was filled with feelings of joy and gratitude. For now the flag of Finland waves once again over this stronghold, and once again, Vipuri will be our sure shield against the East, end quote. This man was a true patriot who fought for his country as well as any man has ever done, and considering whom he fought against, he also fought for the whole free world. Finland would never simply lie down and die. Mannerheim inspired a whole generation of Finns. When I visited Finland in the last days of communism, his people still remembered and treasured that inspiration. The white general in the north at St. Petersburg was Nikolai Yudinich, who had been chief of staff of the Russian Imperial Army in 1913, but had spent the war on the comparatively quiet front of the Caucasus Mountains in the south. Now based in Estonia, south of Finland, Yudinich was not allowed by Admiral Kolchak to recognize the independence of either Estonia or Finland. Only the overwhelming danger which Soviet military power presented to tiny Estonia explains the willingness of the Estonians, who like the Finns wanted to be free of Russia, to support Yudinich in 1919, and they always did so reluctantly. With Mannheim refusing to participate, Yudinich's offensive against St. Petersburg in May was conducted with only 36,000 troops, most of them Estonians, against a Soviet army of 50,000, and so made little progress. Yudinich knew he must have Mannerheim's help. On June 17th, he went to Helsinki, and two days later he signed an agreement to do what all the other white generals had refused to do, to recognize Finland's independence and to recognize uh, the right of Karelia, the Russian province adjoining Finland, where many Finns lived, to decide by plebiscite whether to join Russia or Finland. In return, Mannerheim pledged not only to join the attack on St. Petersburg, but also to lead it. The historian C.J. Smith does not exaggerate when he says, quote, the Udenich-Mannerheim agreement of June 19, 1919, could have had world-shaking consequences had it been implemented promptly, end quote. But it was not implemented. On June 23, 1919, Kolchak wrote Mannerheim begging him to liberate St. Petersburg. Messages between the two men had to travel almost all the way around the world. But the telegraph line along the Trans-Siberian Railway was working. On July 5th, Kolchak learned the substance of the Udenich-Mannerheim agreement on the 11th, he had his text. He dismissed it as fantastic. The most he would do was promise temporary recognition of the Finnish government. On July 20th, Kolchak formally disavowed the agreement, and Mannerheim stayed in Finland. 
did Carl Gustav Mannerheim, the knight of Europe, the Arctic Eagle, the one great hero, to emerge from the roaring night of the Communist Revolution, ever wonder, as he lived out his life with his country under the shadow and the constant menace of the communist colossus that Lenin had built and Stalin came to rule. Whether in that critical summer of 1919, he should have led the attack on St. Petersburg anyway, agreement or no agreement, he would have changed the history of the 20th century if he had. As he was to prove in the Winter War 1939-40, the Soviets had no general to match him. Carl Gustav Mannerheim saved his country from communism for the first time during the rule of Lenin. 21 years later, he was to save it again in the Winter War waged against the Red Army of Joseph Stalin. After the fall of Poland to the Nazis in September 1939, the Red Army swiftly occupied eastern Poland in accord with the secret terms of the Hitler-Stalin Pact, and it was swiftly incorporated into the Soviet Union. The small Baltic nations north of Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia were now ready to Stalin to pluck, uh, which he soon did. That left just one more country to be brought into the Soviet orbit, among those for which Hitler had given Stalin a free hand in the secret clauses of the pact between them, and that country was Finland. In October 1939, the foreign minister of Finland, Vino Tanner, and a former prime minister of Finland, Julio Pasekivi, was summoned to Moscow to receive the Soviet demands. They arrived on October 12th. Stalin stated his demands. A large chunk of the rich farmlands of the Karelian Isthmus between the Gulf of Finland and Lake Latiga, Finland's only Arctic port, Petsamo, their only year-round ice-free Baltic port, and a very strategic naval base, Hanko. The Finns repeatedly rejected these demands, and neither side would budge. Two more visits to Moscow followed. On the 3rd of them, October 23rd, the Finns drove to the Kremlin at 6 o'clock in the evening, when Stalin, now ruling there, liked to work. I will describe Stalin and his tyranny in my lecture in October. The two Finns were taken up a story and down a long, narrow corridor to a room with a battery of telephones, a large writing desk, and a conference table where Stalin was sitting. Finnish foreign minister asked if they might speak in German or English, since their Russian was, quote, was on the weak side, end quote. Nyet, Molotov, the Soviet foreign minister, snapped. At 8 o'clock, Pasikivi got to his feet. Molotov looked astonished. Nobody left the presence of great Stalin without his permission. Is it your intention to provoke a conflict? Molotov demanded of the Finns. No, but you seem to, Pasekivi replied. Stalin's lips parted in a characteristic frosty smile. It had been a long time since anyone had spoken to him like that. The two Finns were facing the most evil ruler of the 20th century, worse even than Hitler, the killer of millions. They were free men and not afraid, and commanding their army was the greatest general of the century, Karl Gustav Mannerheim. There were a few further attempts at negotiation, but the die was now cast. As Molotov made very clear to the two Finns when he said, quote, We civilians can see no further in this matter. Now it is the turn of the military to have their say, end quote.
so the winter war began and Karl Gustav Mannerheim was ready. He had beaten the Soviet army before, so he knew that it could be done. And he must have still remembered and seen again in his mind's eye the body and blood of General de Konin on the railway tracks at Mogilev. In November, the Soviet-Russian invasion of Finland was launched. Stalin's Red Army had a million and a half men and thousands of tanks and aircraft. The Finns had only 150,000 men, just 180 tank guns, a mere handful of tanks, and 162 combat aircraft. The population of Russia was 170 million, of Finland 4 million, odds of 40 to 1. In aircraft, the odds were 30 to 1, in combat soldiers 10 to 1. On paper, the Finns had no chance. But they had Carl Gustav Mannerheim, who knew that no war is won on paper, and that this war had to be fought to the end. And the invasion came in winter, the second coldest winter in 111 years, a winter that was too cold even for the Russians, many of whom froze to death during the campaign, while the Finns, defending their beloved homeland, knew every rock, tree, and inlet of their many frozen lakes. In this epic conflict, they invented the homemade tank destroyer, bottles of flaming gasoline, which they were the first to call in derisive reference to Stalin's foreign minister, the Molotov cocktail. <laughs> Later in the 1980s, when the small Baltic country Lithuania also declared its independence of the Soviet Union and fought to defend their parliament building and their capital of Vilnius, an American of Lithuanian descent who had graduated from West Point and whom I was privileged to know, and who spoke at this college at one time, his name was Andy Iver, was given command of the defense. His chief weapon was the Molotov cocktail, which he told me would have incinerated the Russians if they had attacked. But Finland in Christmas tide 1939 had even more than bravery, Mannerheim, and Molotov cocktails. They had a solid understanding of this enemy and knew the only way to meet and defeat him was to fight to the last man. The historian Nikolai Tolso explains, quote, Finland had known the Red Terror in 1918 and had ever since received a steady trickle of fugitives who had made their way through the snow forest from the icy horrors of the Gulag camps on the Belomorsk Canal to the coal mines of Vorkuta. Everyone knew that a Soviet victory meant not only the imposition of an alien government, culture, laws, but death, torture, and slavery for thousands, and the extinguishing of all vestiges of civilized life for the remainder. In Soviet Karelia, just across the frontier, large sections of the Finnish-speaking population had been deported to Siberia each year since 1934." End quote. Everything that men all dear was at stake to the Winter War for Finland in 1939-40, and Carl Gustav Mannerheim saved them. When the war was over, almost half the Finnish army, 68,000 men, had shed their blood or given their lives. But for every casualty of theirs, they inflicted nine on the Soviets. They destroyed over 800 Soviet aircraft and over 2,000 tanks. Sniper Simo Haya, personally shot more than 500 Soviet soldiers one by one. On January 6, 1940, the Finnish air ace, Lieutenant Saranto, shot down six out of seven attacking Russian bombers in four minutes. 
There could be no doubt about it. All six crashed. All six were found and identified. On December 3rd, 1939, Mannerheim set up his headquarters at Mickeley, named for the Archangel Michael. How many generals in our time have named their headquarters for the Archangel Michael? Which had also been his headquarters for the war, his headquarters in the war for independence against the communists in 1918. I went to Mickeley years ago to pay tribute there to the greatest military hero I have ever studied. I have also visited Mannerheim's home in Helsinki, which his grateful people have lovingly preserved intact. The border between Finland and Russia was the Karelian Isthmus, close to St. Petersburg. Mannerheim built their defense line across it, 88 miles long, but containing 66 concrete pillboxes for machine guns, barbed wire, boulder anti-tank obstacles, and tree stumps. This primitive barrier was fittingly called the Mannerheim Line. On, from December 6th to 20th, three Soviet divisions hammered themselves to pieces against an absolutely impregnable defense that would not give an inch. Any ground the Soviets took during daylight would promptly be recaptured by night. In two weeks, the Soviets lost 108 tanks with nothing to show for it, mostly the Molotov cocktails. In the more open north, where they could not, there could not be any fixed defense line, it appeared that it would be easy for the Soviets to envelop and mop up the far less numerous Finns. But, in the, but to the two most threatened areas, the north shore of Lake Ladoga and the Suomasalmi region of Finland, Mannerheim sent two extraordinary officers, Colonels Talbela and Silas Buo. In choosing them, he revealed yet another example of greatness and in general, the ability to pick good subordinates. Napoleon had this, had a, this that ability also in the highest degree. Pavo Talbela was a farmer's son who had commanded a battalion in the War for Independence and had written his war college thesis on how a victorious battle could be waged in the region north of Lake Latica, where he was now sent to command. Arriving as the Soviet attack began, he rallied fleeing troops, hurled the enemy back, and drove them into positions where they sat harmlessly for the remainder of the war. On the Aglajarvi Road, one of his companies ambushed and destroyed an entire Soviet regiment, 20 times its strength. On the Kalau River Front in January 1940, 32 Finns held a hill against 4,000 Russians. 28 of the Finns were killed, along with 400 Russians. The four Finnish survivors held the hill as the Russians retreated. The defenders of the Kalau River were still there, still holding when the war ended. Yalmar Silas Buu, also a battalion commander in the War for Independence, was a military amateur, a civilian by background and experience, the son of a newspaper editor and a lawyer. Confronting two Soviet divisions with 48,000 men, 335 cannon, and more than 100 tanks, Silas Buu had just 17,000 men, 11 cannon, and no tanks. Against these overwhelming odds, he scored a total victory. The masterpiece of this citizen soldier, the Battle of Soma Salmi, is studied at West Point today as one of the classic, opera classic operations in the entire military history of the world. At one point in the struggle, a Finnish lieutenant named Berkey repulsed two Soviet tanks with a 9mm automatic. 
Both the Soviet divisions that swam with Salome were destroyed. Only a few hundred men escaped. Those Russians not killed in the fighting froze to death in temperatures from 30 to 40 degrees below zero. The commander of the Soviet 163rd Division disappeared. The frozen bodies of 27,500 of his men were counted by the Finns, along with 43 tanks and 270 other vehicles. The Finns lost 900 killed. Vinogradov, the commander of the other Soviet division, the 44th, managed to get back to Soviet lines where Stalin had him shot. A captured colonel of the 44th Russian division described what the winter war with Finland was like. Quote, of course we tried to attack and open the road forward, but it was like hitting our head against the wall. It was different from what we used to in our previous battles in Poland, for instance. It was unbelievable. Awesome. Our communication didn't work and we began to get hungry. But Finns we couldn't see anywhere. And believe it or not, the first Finns I saw were the two who took me prisoner after our regiment was destroyed. We couldn't see them anywhere, yet they were all over the place. If anybody left the campsite, he met with certain death. When we sent our sentries to take their, take their positions around the camp, we knew that within minutes they would be dead with a bullet hole in the, in the forehead or the throat slashed by a dagger. End quote. Despite much genuine sympathy for Finland throughout the world, geography and power politics prevented any help from getting to Finland. Sweden and Norway clung desperately to total neutrality, refusing to allow foreign troops to cross their territory, fearing anything that would increase the likelihood of German invasion, which was to come to Norway, but not to Sweden. Stalin finally appointed a reasonably competent commander, Marshal Semyon Tamoshenko. Stalin had killed most of the others in military purges and gave Timoshenko unlimited reinforcements until a million Soviet soldiers were in Finland. Eventually, the enormous pressure forced the defenders of the manor online into a slow fighting retreat up the Karelian Isthmus, exacting a heavy toll in Russian lives for every mile yielded. On March 5, 1940, the Finnish government decided to sue for peace. Stalin's demands had increased. He now wanted the entire Karelian Isthmus, home to 10% of the population of Finland, including its second largest city, which Mannheim had liberated in the war for independence, Vipuri. They had to give it to him. Of the 485,000 Finnish inhabitants of the Karelian Isthmus, scarcely any stayed behind as the communists took over. After that, the insatiable Stalin and his successors left Finland free. They never dared try to conquer it again. Except for the far mountains of eastern Turkey and a tiny slice of northern Norway, it remained throughout the Cold War the only free nation bordering the Soviet Union. It was though the ghost of Karl Gustav Mannerheim who died acclaimed as the supreme hero and savior of his country in 1951 at the age of 83, still walked with the spirit army of the men he addressed in his last order of the day, March 13, 1940. Quote, soldiers, I have fought on many battlefields, but have never yet seen your equals as warriors. I'm as proud of you as if you were my own children, as proud of the man from the northern tundras 
as of the sons of the broad plains of Ostrobothnia, the forests of Karelia, the smiling tracts of Sabo, the rich farms of Hame and Sathakunta, the lands of Usama and southwest Finland, with their whispering bushes. I am as proud of the factory workers and of the son of the poor cottage as of the rich man's contribution of life and limb. Our fate is hard now that we are compelled to surrender to an alien race, land which we have cultivated with our labor and sweat. Yet we must put our soldiers to the wheel that we may prepare on the soil left for us a home for those rendered homeless and a better life for all. We are proudly conscious of our historic duty, which we shall continue to fulfill, the defense of Western civilization, which has been our heritage. End quote. It was fitting that Finland's glorious victory and defeat over the host of the communist colossus, which Lenin built and Stalin drove, should end in this ringing avowal of the solidarity of rich and poor, of aristocrat and peasant, and of deathless determination to hold fast to all the communists who are committed to destroy, as the man who has seen it all begin in Russia. His words proved the falsehood as they struck down the pride of the communist vision of class and mass of a rending perpetual conflict in the very fabric of the universe. Mannheim went on to become president of Finland, piloting his country through the perils of an alliance with Hitler, whom Mannerheim understood very well. Though Hitler tried to obtain his support in the war against Russia, Mannerheim would never sign any agreement with him. Let us remember Carl Gustav Mannerheim and say a prayer for his noble soul. If you ever go to Finland, which I recommend, even though, as I think I said, the whole country has only five Catholic churches, you will find his name everywhere. For he is Finland's national hero, and his countrymen still put flowers on his grave and on the graves of the men he led so well.